to round two, however you want to think of it. A few things that I, I want to clarify from the last conversation or build upon really quickly. You said you had a 25-year chair. I thought of this as an academic position. It turns out it's a physical chair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's the, I mean, in, in architecture too, you give physical sort of columns and so forth. What's the, what's the root of this Penn State tradition of giving physical objects that are the, at these meaningful moments? Yes, I have um, 20 year, they were coasters, they're beautiful coasters. Prior to that, it's beautifully framed plaques, commemorative, you know, posters marking your, I think, I think they start at, at five and 10 and then the 15, 20 year coaster and the 25 year chair, or you can get a captain's chair. My, I, I picked the rocker. You can also get a clock, a mantle clock, and everyone says that the mantle clock rings on every 15 minutes, just like Old Main. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, don't get the mantle clock. And uh, the rocking chair is fabulous. I, you know, I got ebony black. It has the Penn State seal on the, on the back. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I pegged you for the, uh, I was looking through the options after I, again, I thought it was literally like a sort of an emeritus professorship position, but it's, it's a physical chair, but there was a um... physical chair. I went to the office of physical plant to pick it up and there was some assembly required to put the slides on, but it rocks so smoothly. For a long time, I was rocking in it. Mayor Dad wanted a, a photo of me rocking for the fall retreat. <laughs> So. Yeah, I had you pegged for either for the rocker or for the um, there was one option that had sort of a uh, it was like sort of a hybrid between the black and the brown. Mm -hmm. I saw that one. and I was like, I, I think it's either the rocker or this one that Darla would get. So. <laughs> yeah, I went with the rocker and it doesn't fit my decor at all. Nothing, nothing in my house <laughs> looks like that. <laughs> it's, it's a great I mean, wow, 25 years. And I have to say, you know, I've been mentioning this to a couple of my friends and colleagues that I was doing this and they said, wow, to go from those early, early drawings and considerings of architecture all the way to thinking about your retirement, you know, what are you going to do in retirement? You know, sort of that whole span of a lifetime in in two conversations. That's <laughs> a, a lot to to sort of think about. So, yeah. and, you know, especially with COVID right now and everyone thinks the fashion industry is tanking, you know, like the, even the, the flying industry is tanking. A lot of things are not doing well. And I'm either in, in a very good position to be building at this time so that when things can and if, you know, can break, I can be ready to launch and do what I want to do. Or, you know, I mean, fortunately, I'm not leveraged or I don't have a bunch of equipment, you know, I mean, We've, we've established the process. So that is working very smoothly. I just have to sort of stay on top of it. It's not like I'm, there's a lot, a lot of work on my part right now. So yeah, we had, um, I mean, it, it's, it's really the, I think there was an episode on PBS NewsHour about the fashion industry. They were, I guess, in one of the European fashion weeks, but they were talking about how they had missed you know, the pace of Fashion Week and the culture of it and so forth. But I imagine the traditional model that's been in place since, you know, the 1940s onwards is really struggling, no? Because it's never based on this, it's never had to deal with this long of a, a lapse. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, and I actually think I gave you homework, right? Yeah, the social dilemma. I finished it. I finished it today. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it would be 
interesting to get your perspective on it too. You know, and I, I just read that Victoria Beckham is in conversation with Target. So luxury fashion meets fast fashion. And I have a problem with fast fashion. I, and in terms of as I'm crafting my own endeavor and sort of thinking, and, and I got an invite from this lady from the business of fashion. I can't figure out if it's just a blog or a, I think they have some kind of journal articles and stuff like that. And I was just too busy to do anything with it, but I was looking at a couple of their, their entries and you know, seemed to be promoting fast fashion. And I thought it fell right into the, the lap of the social dilemma, mm-hmm. you know, that, and and in talking with my students about it, they're saying the same thing. Yeah, you know, getting accustomed to buying something that won't last more than a season or thinking that trend is something that means you have to replace all of this in order to, to stay on trend and just kind of wondering who is really contributing to landfill and who is really driving all of that kind of waste and blind consumption. So I think it's low prices of, you know, making it and the fabrics are so not like they are if you can if you can build quality so i think there's a an issue brewing with this <laughs> and especially you know, I think about myself going from, you know, we talked last time that there was no question I was going to be an architect. That was everything. Bucked any other kind of tradition at the time, right? To be a woman working their, her way to do that. And then to think about teaching in architecture, which is glorious, right? It's, I can't think of anything better in terms of, you know, the ideal. And yet I practice as well. So I'm connected to that. But I think about how neither of those is that creative an outlet. Now, especially the pleasure or the luxury of being able to work with a large external grant. That was, you know, I probably had the most stressful taxing on my health when I was trying to spend money legally. <laughs> mm. It's not easy to stay on top of everyone and everything and, and keep the work product rolling out and, you know, getting it published and all of that. It's, it's very stressful. So the practice side of teaching can be a lot. You mean, are, are you talking specifically about the sort of cross-border research you were talking about last time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Any any advice in that in that area? I mean, what what would you um, advise to up and coming researchers? Well, you got to do it. The only advice is to find collaborators that you enjoy collaborating with. You know, because if there's one person on the team that makes it unenjoyable, then it it's really hard. I mean, anyone that I worked with, the the students that I could work with are handpicked. You know, you advertise and. You get to work with only the people and, and you can let them go if you don't like them, you know, in your own field. But if they're co-PIs or collaborators of any sort written in on the grant, then it's tough. I mean, to, you know, incredible to, to have the experience of writing the grant, getting the grant and then publishing on it and all of that. I mean, it's the kind of thing that launches your career. You, you know, you get promoted <laughs> after something like that. And that's, it's, if you can do it, um, you have about four years, four or five years that can sort of set the course of your career. Mm. So you kind of hunker down and, and get that, get that out of the way. I mean, from that, it launched, I, you know, my endowed chair position for a couple of years, Ted talk, everything, you know, kind of 
came after that. So was the endowed so, chair sort of part of what came with the grant or was it was it sort of a subsequent step? As a reward or a, you know, a faculty that are operating at that level, you know, the endowed chair design innovation. So, you know, the stuff we were doing was, yes, pretty cool. <laughs> we had a big exhibit and the work was stunning, gorgeous. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, it's not just my work. It's the handiwork of all the students and that were, were part of it. So naturally all the architecture students are the ones doing all the graphic parts. So it looked great. Did it lead to any policy outcomes, by the way? Uh, yeah, we looked at, you know, not not influencing real life policy places in, in that way. But we had a we turned our main gallery. We have a gallery right at the entry of the school. It's called the Rouse Gallery. And we took it over and made it into a think tank. And we had this large table that we wrapped in the white butcher paper, like the morphosis example, and invited people to uh, add to the conversation. So we had our exhibit all the way around, and it showcased all the work we had done. And, you know, so the, the comments were, so it was a very courageous thing to do, because some of the stuff might, might have been difficult to understand. You know, you never know. And it was all super positive and people were encouraged by, you know, said we should do all this. So it was, it was more challenging and what if, and why not? And, you know, taking on some of the big pharma, big, you know, questions about the border, questions about equity access, you know, mismatch. So we're just looking at if, if students and faculty who aren't involved, this isn't our world, you know? And if we could pose these things and propose these possibilities, we had a competition winner called I Am a Second Responder. It was with ACSA. And our approach, it was after the the earthquake in Haiti. And so first responders are the folks that EMS, they're coming in and pulling people out out of the immediate danger. And then second responders are the wave of people that set up the temporary camps. Mm. And we felt that, you know, a year later, the people living in those temporary camps are still there. So their jobs are uprooted, their homes are destroyed, um, neighborhoods no longer exist. And so we said what we should do is rally the, the sort of, we call it a virtual town center, rally every expertise outside of that immediate problem and help to design the perfect community for now. You know, so when we do displace them into a temporary situation, it's setting up everything that can make that into a fabulous community for them because that's what it's going to have to be. Hmm. And so we did the same thing proposing after the tsunami in Japan. And in that instance, communication was shut down. So people in Japan said, you guys out there know more than we know in here. (laughs) Hmm. So the virtual town center was our way of saying everyone, all hands on deck from every domain, whether it's food or hygiene or disease, you know, building, building in that particular terrain, building for that particular location, you know, come together and make proposals. We can charrette in three days, two days you know, and put these proposals in into place and build build a practice of that, build a, the experience doing that. So, you know, we can rally and come together and do, do good. So 
Mm. So it was all all examples like that. Yeah, I mean, that may be a good segue to also talk about the book. So I, d- I honestly don't know how you do all these things at once and maintain this strange calmness that you have. But uh, so the book is Outside the Skin Systems Approach to Society's Larger Structural Issues. So I ordered this and supposed to come, I think, in like 10 days. But from what I gather, <laughs> you've sort of framed the book around another scholar's game theory models. Am I getting this mm-hmm. correct? And there's like yeah. five scenarios. Could you sort of dive into it a little bit? Oh, I would love to. I So it's Eleanor Ostrom. And- and she was a Nobel Prize winner in 20, oh, 2009. She died in 2012. And she's a social scientist. And her framework, she would study the, their communities that were resilient and thriving at a minimum 500 to 1,000 years. So able to adapt and evolve and change with changing generations, changing external pressures on, you know, like if it's a a particular livelihood, fisheries, people farming in in the mountains of Switzerland. And so she traveled all over the world, looked for these case studies. And she, you know, her eventual thesis was in support of grassroots. That local knowledge was the best and rather than a top-down dynamic. And so I should get her. I mean, I'm happy to dig into the math. So she used these five games. The first game, and we just explored this. And in the course, I set it up where in my diagram, I had commons environments, because that's what, you know, she was looking at too, in the sense that environments that we are invested in for our livelihood or our life, right? Hmm. So commons environments, and then the institute, this was my model, then the institutions that we design to address those commons. So if it's a, a vulnerable to degradation or the carrying capacity is threat, threatened. So the institutions we create to manage that. And then the human behavior component, you know, so the relationship between those three are the feedbacks where policy then can be put together. And this is sort of a, a riff off of the negotiation triangle you often see in, in sort of planning literature, right? Like um, economics, environment, and spatial justice or social justice. So, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, is this structured off of your, the course that you give on systems um, mm-hmm. thinking at Penn State? Yes. I see. Yes. All, all of, you know, the material had been brewing since 2005 when I started teaching that course. So I was gathering all these, all this material. And what was amazing is being able to see these patterns develop and cycle back and it's like, oh my God, here we are again. But but the panarchy framework was usually the one people would, would look to when they look at a relationship between environments and institutions. Mm. And that's just a two-way thing. And for me, that was a environments were that was too general. Commons were were more invested in that. And there's a carrying capacity in a commons term. Hmm. And then, so if panarchy was just environments and institutions, so I wanted commons and institutions and human behavior because that is everything. And that's where the game theory piece comes in. So game theory is just life theory. It's the games of life. And it's looking at human behavior under the assumption that humans are, that it's rational. You know, we think we're we're irrational, Hmm. but certain behaviors out of greed and and jealousy or competition, it's rational. It's been widely studied. So game one, she describes it like the tragedy of the commons. And as, as I've told it in the book and in the course, you know, there's two sheep herders and they each have two sheep on, on the shared pasture. 
the commons. And the grass is growing fine, everything's going along great. And there's without any, you know, maybe they had an initial conversation, but they haven't, there's a tacit understanding that it's, that's the carrying capacity, two sheep each. Then one day, one of the sheep herders decides she needs a new Volvo. And she says, looks like the grass is growing well enough. I'll just add a third sheep on the pasture. Mm-hmm. And in that that moment is everything as we as we see the course play out and as you read the book. That moment, you know, we say the shot heard round the world is the other sheep herder looks out her window and says, "What? You mean you can do that? You can make a decision without coordination, um, without communication, and it breaks trust. Mm. Trust is the big thing, and we see that play out in the math." You know, you can imagine every kind of world situation, every law, every policy is all about designing trust hmm. that we, you know, you could say this is this is the paradise story, original sin, you know, that is broken. And so every policy arrangement since then is going to be to guarantee, make assurances, promises about trust. Hmm. So when we see it in the payoff matrix the the matrix is is red the top number is player number one and the side number is player number two and each has two choices you can either cooperate or defect and so in the payoff matrix you see c and d and then in the player two you have their same choices c and d Hmm. and if it's in a scale of zero to ten and if both players cooperate, then it's 10-10. And the first number is the player number one. The second number is player number two. If one defects, that means I gain, you know, I'm, if I'm the defector, now I jump off that scale. I'm now 11. Hmm. But player two, the other sheep herder, is minus one. Hmm. Hmm. And then she has that option too. She can be 11 and I could be minus one as if she chose to defect. Mm-hmm. And then if we both defect it in the first game it's zero zero and what happens in that you know minus one is again this is fast forward we, d- we discover that that person was made a social sucker and no one you know no matter how forgiving or tolerant a person is there's something about being made the social sucker that it comes back right mm. and so then you can imagine that that turns into a tit for tat. And it's the kind of thing where every person thinks about their time growing up and siblings in the back seat of the car on the road to grandmother's house. And one kid elbows the other and, you know, it turns into a, a fight. And there are actually competitions on how to win tit for tat, which is also an interesting discussion. But so you can imagine that game one turns into point two, point three, point four lots of versions of 1.1. And so finally, you you blow the whistle and you say, okay, we're obviously not going to resolve this and the carrying capacity is going to get threatened more and more. So we decide we need an external agent to come in. And this is the Leviathan. This is the monster. This is... Mm. This is the big sea creature that has to come in. And the assumption is that this, in game two, that this external agent is perfect. And by perfect external agent, we, we mean even though it's an external person, this person knows the pasture perfectly, is able to monitor the actions you know, completely, is able to catch defective behavior perfectly, and knows how to 
to sanction perfectly, Mm. knows how to reward good behavior perfectly. And so in order to afford that kind of perfect agent, we both determined that we actually both need to add that third sheep on the pasture. Mm -hmm. So now the payoff matrix is not just 10-10 if we cooperate, but it's 9-9. And to defect is still an 11, but to defect is now a minus 2 because we're having to pay for the cost of the agent. Mm -hmm. So when we both defect, it's minus 2, minus 2. And what this means is we've not only compromised the carrying capacity, but in addition, we've compromised our trust. So then when you go to game three, we realize that there's no such thing as a perfect agent, external agent. They're going to fail. And in the payoff matrix, they or the math part of it, they suggest it's not just 50%. It's not 0.5. You know, it's not that they're going to be this good agent half of the time and a bad agent the other half of the time, but rather it's a 0.3 and a 0.7 as a variable. So in the math, they use an X and a Y. So anyway, the, the long story is in the imperfect agent or a real life agent, because they're going to look the other way or they're going to be, they're going to fail at sanctioning properly. They're going to fail at rewarding properly, you know, they're, they're either going to be divisive or bribed or just stupid. <laughs> you know, there's a flaw in that system. And so when you play that math out, and you'll have to study it in the book, you see that there's a 9.4, 9.4 instead of, or a minus 9.6. But at the end, you realize then to defect, defect is like a minus 1.4. Hmm. So it's not quite minus two. And translated, that means when we have a sloppy institution, that's when we're allowed to see a hole in the system and be entrepreneurial and take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, if the agent is looking the other way, I might be able to go out and bag a few bushes, you know, to feed a, a sheep. Mm-hmm. So then we realize after, so game three is re- more re- like reality. Game four is now layering bureaucracy. We call it the watcher of the watcher. Hmm. You know, so you can imagine you might have local jurisdiction that policy that monitors the sheep herders and the pasture, and then that's not working. So you add in game four layers of bureaucracy. And you could say that game two goes 4.1.2, you know, layers and layers and layers. And the idea, and theoretically in the math, you would see that increment 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6. So with more and more layers of, of watching, now the minus two, minus two with the perfect agent with both defecting, now it moves up more like 1.4. Hmm. You know? So the more we have sloppy institutions, the closer we get to a perfect agent. Hmm. So... Finally, then game five comes along and we say, okay, stop this madness. What was the worst we learned in game one? You could cheat. It, we learned that, you know, given, given the rules and it, it's human nature to defect, defect you know, if you're going to, if you see a payoff matrix and it's 10, 10, if you're cooperating, but you see that there's an 11, if you defect, that's basically leaving money on the table. Hmm. to cooperate. So think about every situation where you're driving the speed limit, you're obeying the laws, you're paying your taxes, (laughs) you're leaving opportunities to cheat the system. So we say, okay, so that's the worst we learned in game one. Why don't we do this? Why don't we take that as new information? Now let's rewrite the rules. 
And in fact, we've grown to want to break the system. If you're writing a grant proposal, you want someone to read it and catch where the gaps are, right? If you're writing a paper, a book, you want someone to read it and say, here, I caught these edits. If you're writing a program, you want someone to to break it, see where it can, you know, security systems or whatever. Hmm. So game five then says, rather than moving to all of these layers of external governance and policy, we're better off if we can create that policy at the grassroots level, at the local level. Hmm. And in my course, we also, I make it very, you know, I stress that it's not enough to just say no government, only grassroots, because in that model, there's also at what point we need external regulation and at what point that doesn't. So there's no such thing as too much local or too little you know, government oversight in some instances and in some instances. So it's knowing. And the problem is when we politicize either of those moves, those strategies, so that you you rule out and all it is is a mechanism to destroy the trust in an external agent when we need top-down regulation. Mm. So it doesn't serve. And the player that loses all the time is the environment because we don't have laws or it's not protected in, in the Constitution. It's going to lose everything because the pasture, the shared pasture, is constantly requiring counting on us to cooperate. That's the only way it it can survive. So yeah, the five games are pretty powerful. And, you know, students coming into it, they're they're a stranger to that kind of language, game theory language. It's usually in the business school uh, rhetoric. But once they get a handle on it, and what I do is we have readings and then I cap each one of these with a documentary and they see it all, all of it play out. <laughs> you know, when when someone is encouraging the stag hunt, I mean, it's literally in that documentary. So it's a nice kind of rhythm to, yeah, we can rely on scholarly articles, but when you see it play out in a scenario like Enron, the Enron story and that collapse, then we see the commons, we see the institutions that we're all, I mean, in, in that sense, everyone's retirement and the whole mm. accounting and banking. And then, you know, the, the power grid in California, the environment was pulled into it. So it's a nice rhythm anyway. Yeah. What are, what are the documentaries you use? I use Enron, the smartest guys in the room. And what was ironic about that that happened in 2001 and shortly after they were, you know, went bankrupt, then we were hit with 911. Mm. So that story was kind of eclipsed by 911. You know, there are conspiracy theories that wonder <laughs> mm. if that was sort of perfectly timed. Then the next we look at is flow for the love of water and we also look at who killed the electric car. The first one is fabulous. And um, there we, we see how the car companies themselves actually devoured their inventions mm. because they weren't making money on a car that doesn't need oil changes and mm. oil filters. So we watch that. We watch Walmart, the high cost of low price. And the, the final one is uplifting. And it's how to save the world, one cow, one man, one planet. 
Mm. And it tells about biodynamic farming in India. It's amazing, the soil. And it shows all of the pieces we've been looking at from microeconomics, the environment, restoring the soils, taking back ownership of agribusiness, pushing out Monsanto, pushing out the genetically modified organisms. And it shows how a farming community, you know, the sort of grassroots literally can bring back the sort of ecosystems and the the agri-systems and everything, you know, and they're making money. It's a, it's a profit, Mm. profit making system. Mm. You know, they're, they're harvesting more, they're eating better food, their health, all, all these systems prosper from this. Mm. So, and then the students do case studies and the book has eight of those. It was hard to pick because they're literally hundreds, but I picked a sort of nice cross section to show how this model can be applied to a lot of different topics. And, and so how, how long has the book been cooking for you? You said you, you've been thinking about it since you started teaching the course, but when did you start to actually bring things together into a manuscript form? Well, let's see. I guess because the the products from the grant are in there, uh, there are a couple other public lectures I gave. So the course, yeah, started in 2005. I would say probably after 2015, I had enough material. That was after the TED Talk, and I had enough material that I could say that that's when I applied for the, made the book proposal. Hmm. So 2016, something I you know, probably was gathering around 2015, 16, and then pres- I, I knew I wanted uh, ORO editions and AR and D because their books were pretty. <laughs> mm. And they were uh, the AIA convention was being held in Philadelphia one one year, and I thought I'll go over there and make my pitch to them. And so we sat down and I showed him my proposal. I showed him all my samples that I had of writing and material that could go into it. And he said, yeah, let's do it. He loved it instantly. I didn't shop it to anyone else. Yeah, the... Um... I mean, the book cover alone is quite stunning. So I'm hoping the I'm really curious how you incorporate that many different types of things into a book. I mean, it sounds like they were on board from the get go. But yeah, I'm really curious to get it. Yeah, I. it's probably not typical. It's I, I didn't need to write. I didn't want to write. You know, I don't want to say dry scholarly. You know, I said this is my this is an opus. And I, I was more inspired by people like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And when I looked at all the books that I admired the most, they weren't the real, real heavy scholarly ones. I wanted something that was more coffee table, reader friendly. And I was trying to find my... So so the table of contents, it's, it's things like planting acorns knowing, knowing we'll never harvest the oaks. You know, so I... I go through um, like follow the money, group think, the 20 year lag and why it matters. So I'm pulling all these types of systems approaches that get us into trouble and or exposing why certain things are rational. And, and we tried to think they're irrational, which, you know, does factor into my thinking of the fashion when we sort of get to that part of the topic. So being able to, you know, know enough about how things work that you don't get sucked into some of these, they're dysfunctional, you know, I mean, just looking at how money works, you know, the difference between money and value. If money was always grounded on a scarcity, then the gold 
something that is scarce, then there's going to be arbitrage opportunities to try and take the most of that gold. Hmm. But if it's based on value, value creation, you know, making people smile, keeping, getting everyone fed, there should be no cap to the amount of value you can build into the world. And so when we changed the, the monetary system, moved off of the gold system and the Bretton Woods, right? The European money was anchored to the gold, the, the dollar. You know, when you can move whatever enterprise you're doing into value creation, then just like the, the documentary, How to Save the World, One, one Man, One Planet, One Cow, you know, all of these things benefit serves the, the, the joy you're getting from doing something that's good, the impact to your family, all of those things. And, and you think you can't put a price on that, but you can. And then looking at things like the social dilemma and you say it's in, in game three and game four, it's in their best interests to make you think you need more, you know? It's in their best interest to get into that headspace and um, yeah. Yeah, because money has a bias towards debt. And, you know, because money, what if, if it's tied to something that they grow, you know, originally an agrarian way of making a living. So that grain is going to rot or rats are going to eat it. So you need to turn it into something else, turn it into bread, turn it into oatmeal. It can't just sit there. So anything that's based on a commodity is going to have a bias towards debt. Mm. And where anything that's based on value creation, it's uh, like pay it forward. It's only going to benefit more and more and more. Yeah, I, I, I mean, as you were talking, the, the I, I kept re- reflecting on two things. One is the, the homework you gave me, which is the social dilemma. And the other one is, it sounds like what your approach to, you know, Lindbergh is, the your, your, your fashion company. I mean, the way you just explained the, the series of rational choices that can lead to, you know, systems that are in trouble and then how you have to reformulate something at the anchor of those systems seems to be at the, the heart of the social dilemma, right? Which talks about big mm-hmm. tech and Google and Facebook and so forth, which... Yeah. I hadn't heard of this, the the main fellow, Tristan Harris, the way he talks about it, it's really fascinating. And I, I was looking a bit at him, and apparently he worked as sort of a design ethicist within Google and so forth, but he has this quite interesting background about it, how he's framing. And a lot of the folks, it seems like within that, the documentary as a whole are folks coming directly from big tech are still in big tech and are looking for ways to radically reformulate it. And at the heart of it's this notion of value, right? How do you actually... I forget, there's a scene in the movie where I guess the algorithms are talking to one another and one of the one portion of the algorithm says, do you think this feedback loop is actually good for, you know, so-and-so the person and the other people just say, you know, they'd never even thought about it kind of thing and they just skip over it. But so here's, let's let's link it back to the fashion now. It seems like a fairly comparable movie, right? In terms of big tech, when you compare it to fashion, maybe big tech has much more substantial implications on society in terms of manipulation and so forth. But the series of decisions that have been made over time that have led to the deeply detrimental state of the system as a whole seems fairly fairly applicable there so you you dive into this territory you have this background of thinking where does it guide you i mean we we tapped into a little bit in the last talk you know the the different approach to fashion that you're talking about about inheritable clothing and minimal clothing and minimal sets of clothing on top of minimalist aesthetics as well but what's the um, how do you how do you dive into that what's the story there 
Well, you know, let's start with the treadmill that the rat race. Right now, the articles I'm I'm reading on this seem to think this is so novel. You know, the idea that from the 1960s, you had that calendar, right? You got ready for fashion weeks. And there was a fashion week every week of the year. <laughs> and it's just the big ones that the press tends to, you know, Paris and London and uh, New York. But in order to gear up for that and then get every cog in the system riled up, whether that is you need 20 pieces or you need 10 pieces. When I showed you the slide of the little schedule for the the fashion week show that we attended, you know, they send out the 10 piece runway entries first and then the big 20 piece. So right away, you know, more is better. And so this rat race to get 20 pieces and and get in the lineup and compete for those places. And so, A, the treadmill of trends, you know, for me, architecture and fashion are both culture makers. So design is, is a coercive act. And whether that's designing music or fashion, clothes, architecture, anything. So all of this sets culture into a spin. And so trends are part of that in the social dilemma, the programs talking to one another, making someone think that they need to be current. You know, and I mentioned that having, you know, so the, the folks on the West Coast, to me, I feel like there's a uniqueness in the way people express themselves with their clothes versus the East Coast. I feel like there's there's a, a uniform, basically, probably capped off by the New York black, <laughs> right? And so there's this treadmill at first. And fast fashion has really, really played into that in the sense that now we're, we're not really waiting for the seasons and for the big fashion houses to set that culture in motion. And then the smaller designers, you know, Banana Republic or make those translations into ready to wear. So we've lost that rhythm, but now fast fashion, the moment they see something, they can crank out mm. a copy overnight. You know, so I feel like it's just, it's amplified. You know, even now when you hear Victoria Beckham is talking to Target, you know, so no longer was Victoria Beckham just doing a runway show and then the ready-to-wear makers are translating that. Now Victoria herself is making her clothes. Um, ready-to-wear. Ready-to-wear. Yeah. Mm. I think right now, you know, and, and all along I said, A, because I'm, I'm not seeking investors, I can't play into that rat race. And so it's partially a function of what I'm willing to do. You know, this is, this is my retirement project. And so I don't want to build more stress for myself. Mm. But it's also, you know, a, a critique. I mean, we've had, I've had a long time to look at the, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm right. I certainly don't know if I'm right. And I've only sold a few pieces. I'm certainly not out of the woods. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not a, a I'll never be a, a household name, but I feel like the things that I'm critical of, and especially when younger people come to me and want to help me with things, and they're in that mindset, they're in that rat race, you know, they are being programmed. And I really want to push back on that. I don't want to get caught up in that rat race. Do you think there's anything about your your sort of North European 
background that triggers this that i mean one example that kept popping into my head since we talked last was my um, advisor during, during phd howard davis he he mentioned an encounter with a i want to say a scholar a danish scholar and they were shopping somewhere just for something like a spatula and howard kept showing you know you could get this you could get that and eventually the the Danish scholar found essentially like a 30 euro spatula. And Howard was saying, I mean, don't you think that's a bit much? It's just a spatula. And their response was, well, why would I buy something I can't pass to my children? Mm-hmm. And so it had like this level of durability embedded into it. I don't know with your, do you trace it to something like that at all? Is there? Well, I, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, in my book, I do in the 20 year lag and why it matters. You know, the generational influences, it's not a coincidence that people that are born from out of the Depression era, they don't want to throw things away. You know, they have a whole different mindset about how to buy things and do you need it, um, waste not, want not. And I feel I'm actually attached to things. I like, I looked around my house recently and wondering, you know, is there anything that I should sell or get rid of, you know, and all it is that the sort of big pieces yeah it's like everything has its place <laughs> and you know mm. and my kitchen you know i have one drawer that has all my eating utensils and cooking utensils in it you know i don't have multiple i have one drawer where you know linens are so i don't have multiple it's a an an ed, pretty edited life i feel like i'm constantly editing but mm. you know i think that's just probably growing up again you know it's probably more credited to farmers you get one paycheck a year and you're pretty <laughs> frugal about what you do with that so you know may maybe it's out of uh, my access to how i can pull this together i'm getting ready right now i have you know, three pieces in production, and this is the most expensive production phase I've had so far. Mm. And, you know, I think everyone has that that hump that, you know, I've been sort of blessed by COVID in a way that I could sort of slowly build this and build my inventory. But now I've got a, a big chunk that's that's ready to ready to go. And, you know, to order the fabric that can accommodate that large uh, purchase, you know, or production and the labor. But then once I have all that built, I can promote the capsule mm. and I can sell the capsule. So if I only have 50 pieces of each one of these items, if I were to sort of be marketing and pushing him out the door, then I wouldn't have anything to really push for the big capsule, right? Mm. So I've been holding back, keeping it kind of hush-hush right now so that I can build the inventory. And the capsule is the uh, the series of garment pieces that, that sort of can be interchangeable that form a full wardrobe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And, and the idea is that I start with these fundamental pieces and the, the silhouettes are timeless, Seriously, you you know, and it, it's kind of fun to think I started that, that first capsule I call the catalog 2017. So it's still each one of these pieces are like totally current. They're nothing. There's nothing outdated about them at all. And the fit, it's focused on flattering the body, not just, you know, this is a trend. I saw an ad for these retro jeans you know, bell bottoms and high waisted and, you know, mom jeans and, and none of it looked good. <laughs> and, 
you know, it's just, again, a recycling a trend, thinking that that's the popular thing to do, or but it's not flattering. And How do you arrive at, at timeless silhouettes? I mean, within architecture, this is a common issue too, right? And sort of hunting for the thing that's continuously culturally relevant. What's the, what's the approach you've taken on with that? Well, it's pretty simple. You... Um, A, I have several pieces from my mom, you know, that I kept from her wardrobe, especially coats. And then, you know, just do a survey from the the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s. Every every single silhouette that is the most flattering finds its way back. The the boat neck rather than a, a plunging neckline, you know, a boat, a wide boat neck is flattering on anybody hmm. at any age, any body type, you know, a sort of champagne or, you know, sleeve that you can wear. I like long sleeves. I like to be able to have something that you can layer with that long sleeve. Hmm. So having something like that, that can, can layer a waistband that sits right at the hip and right at the belly button is always going to be flattering. Hmm. Um, so you have a fascia, or, you know, like a facing, <laughs> that's the architect coming. <laughs> I have facia. <laughs> um, a facing. And um, that holds the tummy. And then there's a, a drop that make, makes the butt look good. There's just some styling. I mean, no, like dolman sleeves and raglan sleeves are always better than, you know, you have to save a regular sleeve for a coat or a cut like that. Hmm. where a sort of halter cut is always going to be more thinning. And so that raglan sleeve and a, a dolman that sort of is nice and big on the bottom. And, you know, when you can make a dress out of a dolman sleeve, it's it doesn't make the arm look fat. It doesn't make, you know, it makes everything look thin, that kind of loose drape there. So, you know, you sort of study these Hmm. on different body types and you say wow these are going to hold they're going to and they're cuts they're not trends and so you 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 actually went through the decades and mm-hmm. and analyzed mm-hmm. these things and found sort of recurring patterns yeah you know during the 20s the flapper dress was especially popular because it looked good on any body type you know and if you can pull that you take that boxy dress and you pull up the hemline and everyone looks great and then you can add some fringe or you can add, you know, some lace to that bottom. But that's that's a classic look. And you add a, a boat neck to that and a sort of looser sleeve hole. Everyone looks great. Did you ever do this architecturally? I mean, did you look through the decades and try to find patterns in terms of, I don't know, aesthetic spaces? I mean, was this something you had applied in other fields of design or is this just what you've done so far in your approach to fashion? Well, I think for me, go back to, you know, when we were talking about starting out as an architect and with interest rates so high, I know that I was looking for efficiencies all the time. How can I create this ambiance without a wall or without a, you know? Hmm. So I think I've never liked a kitchen that was just up against the wall (laughs) and nothing else, you know? And so in my dream house, I literally only have an island, a large, large island, so that I'm not facing the wall, I'm facing other people at the island cooking. Mm. And so I think I've had my own preferences for, 
you know, I like the, a big shell of a building. I don't, you know, that's where that efficiency is. The moment you tack on any kind of appendage, you're adding dollars to that. You know, it's a trigger. It's a flinch. (laughs) You know, it's like being afraid of the fireworks if you've been through a war, right? Mm. Anything that adds tax on that money, that, that efficiencies, to me, it registers as not elegant and elegant has a cost. It seems to me, though, your your approach in fashion is slightly different, no? Because in at least in terms of architecture, I know there's at least through lots of the discourse, there's this notion of how do you capture a current zeitgeist, the current sort of spirit of the times and either reflect that or push and pull at that with the contemporary understanding of space, of surface, of, of what have you, program, system, structure, what have you. But for years in, in fashion design, it seems like you've actually gone a very different approach in that you're trying to find a story that can weave across across various zeitgeists, mm-hmm. across various timelines, which is, it's not just efficiency. No, you're actually looking for almost a contemporary archetype. Yeah, like a con- for a connection. Yeah. Yeah. And then the ne- the other layer that I'm adding to each of the capsules. So you have your basic pants and tops and, you know, a, a knit top that layers over these things. Then I'm adding a statement jacket. And the statement jacket to me, is the place where I don't care how interesting or nouveau it is, it's going to be timeless. So little story about that. When when I was in college, there was a group of guys starting a company, little retail company in Fargo. It was called Uncommon Threads, and they were weavers. They were weaving their own material. And for their open house, they'd had a, a local seamstress make a couple of jackets and at the time and they asked me to model them and one was it was an alligator and so when you put the jacket on they were just short-waisted little black dress covers but art pieces and so when you extended your arms with the alligator one you had these leather you know eyes and and Mm -hmm. and a big snout on the one arm and the other one was a tail and when you opened the jacket it all fluttered with these silk like savannah grasses Mm. unbelievable right and at the time these jackets were selling for two hundred dollars and that was too much for me as a student Mm. but so regret not buying one of those another one was a sheep and it was all white had four little black tabs front and back that were the feet you know and they were notched like the hooves but the white fabric was covered in these miscellaneous white buttons mm. so the fur the nappiness of the fur was reflected in these white buttons so i'm working on these very showcase statement jackets that will cap off the capsules mm. so i mean you could buy them independent you can buy anything independently but but they're all designed so you know when you have that that dolman sleeve then the pumpkin coat has a dolman sleeve you know that fits over that so you're not bunching up a dolman sleeve under a sleeve hole so so how much of your terminology has developed over the years with this most of this i can i can catch because of the again the doctoral research but is this um are these terms that you knew prior to getting into it oh yeah (laughs) yes and you know when you i mean we we learned in home ec right you learn the terms for for different things, different tools. You learn how to use use it, you know, the references, the patterns. You know, s- simple patterns explain things, but more advanced patterns, even buying retail, there's a lot there that doesn't get explained to you. Mm. So you have to understand what different notches mean, what different graphic symbols 
mean for sewing? Yeah. What about design process? How do you, for instance, with this recent sort of pieces that you're pushing through production, what's the approach? Do you start with material? You said you start with silhouette. How was the, is there a consistent method that you apply to all of these? Is it more organic how you develop the items? What's the, what's the approach? It's interesting how I watched recently, there's a, a television show, Next in Fashion. Hmm. And Tan Franz from Queer Eye is one of the hosts, and he's delightful. And so they invite these, it's it's a reality show, they invite these fashion designers to come and compete for $250,000. And all of them have already established brands. Mm. They're not novices. And most of them are pretty good craftspeople. Uh, they're able to sew, they're able to design, they're able to, to sketch and, you know, work under pressure. You know, they're assigned a muse, they're assigned a model, and they have a mannequin that has their name tag on it. So that mannequin is dimensioned to fit that model eventually. And watching how they do, you know, you instantly are sketching, um, but then you run to the fabric. Hmm. And that's exactly, you, you really have to start with the fabric. You can have an idea in your mind, but but the moment they that the hosts would announce the competition, they all rush to the fabric first. And I don't know how much preparatory design thinking they've done coming into this competition. I think everyone would have some ideas in their portfolio. But yeah, I have some ideas in mind. I have a an idea book, you know, kind of lookbook thing that I'm I'm thinking about. And then I work with the fabrics and, you know, I, I know who's going now. I'm, I'm developing some sources that carry certain types of fabric and I know who to go to. And then I think this is very much unique to how an architect would do things. I use interfacing. It's a supporting material that you can either iron on to fabric or or stitch it on. Hmm. Now, if you were making a, a suit, you would stitch, you would baste this interfacing to stiffen the collar, stiffen a fabric a little more. But what's neat about that, I treat it like a, a cloth paper. And so I'll start draping my mannequin because I have a mannequin that's my size. And I'll drape that with the with this white interfacing. It's cheap. And it's I, I choose the type that has an ironable, like an adhesive on the one side. Mm. And once I get some things, then I'll pin that together and then I can iron those together. And then that becomes something that I don't work with muslin. That's a traditional step that people have been sort of taught that that's, that's where you would go. But muslin has no stretch to it. It has, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. So I, I take that paper pinned, ironed sort of sketch model, and then I put that on a, a likeness, you know, like a cheap material that I picked up at Joanne Fabrics as a rough and I, I sew that and, and try to get the fit right. And then I try it on myself and, you know, it goes pretty quickly. And then once I get, get it to that stage, then I can start to work. Once I'm comfortable with, with the fit the way I like, then I, I make it out of the sample yardage, they call it. So the interfacing is something, is that how you're developing a sketch or is that building off of some idea that you already have? You know, I might have. And like when I did the, one of my items is this, you know, cowl top. And so there's this short, it's not a big cowl. I didn't want it. I wanted a stiff enough fabric that it would hold up around the neck. I didn't want it to fall. And I wanted to tie that to a raglan sleeve, which is kind of like what I'm wearing here. Hmm. So I wanted to see how can I get that 
and and I, I realized that I needed a stiffer. I've got a band in the back of that cowl that holds it up a little more. Mm. So it's a different material that I'm introducing. And so I had to work that puzzle out on the mannequin, kind of hmm. sewing. And so it's a grow grain ribbon that is wrapped around the fabric to give it a little more so it all doesn't fall. You know, it's got some height in the back. And the way it's shortened, it's not like a typical cowl. It's a shorter, so a blend of the material weight and its characteristics and the design and other details that would come into that. Hmm. In architecture too, do you would you dive into modeling fairly quickly in the process? No, I don't. <laughs> oh. I'm totally a plan starter. I totally start with plan. So do you think, is there something from fashion that would switch how you actually approach architecture now? I do, yes. I'm actually working with, we've used Grasshopper and Rhino in a research project for nutrition. Hmm. And in my studio right now, I'm teaching an options studio this fall. And we're using Grasshopper. Because, and my uh, studio is called D-Zone, and we're looking at these, you know, parametric spaces and forms. And, you know, we we watched Patrick Schumacher's presentation, Jump the Gap, and it was awesome how he showed a series of these steps that are just flowing. And again, not necessarily having a specialization program to that, but just a spatial flow. Hmm. And so we're, you know, one of the students is working on a community living room and looking at the code and the zoning issues, you know, what would replace that area separation wall? You know, is it a fire retardant curtain? Is it, you know, Hmm. um, Antoine Pradoc interpreted that concrete block double loaded corridor in a grade school (laughs) Hmm. as buying time. And so that creates such a, a wretched space what else can I do to buy time with space? And he turns the classrooms out into courtyards and the courtyards are then where you spend the money and it buys you that same time. Hmm. So we're looking at issues like that. And interestingly, when all the students made proposals, we had a day where we'd done all our research. I started it out with an image of Agnes Dennis, her wheat field project in the 70s um, in Battery Park, New York City. And she planted these acres of wheat on land that's worth four point something billion dollars. Mm. And she said, we don't need any more sculptures of men on horses or something. You know, she wanted to do, and the wheat was harvested and it was not genetically modified wheat. So the wheat was then given to nonprofits around the world to plant, Mm. you know, so it had really far reaching impact. And we looked at the Deleuze quote, you know, bring something incomprehensible into the world. And so we're looking at zoning and code policy issues. And we started with the way soils are described. There's six layers of soil and in clumps of two, two are located at the bedrock layer. Two are located at the subsoil layer, and then two are located at the topsoil layer. And we're treating these soils layers as metaphors for what, let's go down to bedrock and let's look at zoning, how we build our city, you know, city making mechanisms, how we build our buildings. And let's question all the way down to bedrock. Mm. And we're finding that for our immune system, we're supposed to be closer to our soil. We're supposed to be closer to our animals. 
So everything that we've thought about the rural out there, you know, is wrong. Growing our own food, being close to our own food need is right. And so we're looking at the Copenhagen five finger plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that. And so looking at ways. So we have our ridges and our water systems in the area here. And so we're looking at how to protect those. And then how do we then grow out and bring rural into the city better looking at opportunities mm. yeah. I know um, Carolyn Steele has a book that just came out also called Citopia, where she talks about precisely that. So she had a hungry city, which I think was 2008. And then this one came out in, I guess, 2020, because there was like a 12 year gap. But she she talks about something fairly similar that you need to collide the productive hinterland with the city as much as possible. I'm still working through the book, embarrassingly, because I, I talked to her a long time ago. I'll blame it on COVID. But um, yeah. basically, from what I can gather is, you know, there's a common assertion that embedding hinterland within the city or farmland within the city ends up being a poor usage of land. But it seems like there's also this lack of experimentation embedded within that too, right? So if we actually do collide a productive hinterland with the city and allow for the those lands to be experimented on over countless generations, then you actually have the capacity to innovate with them. But if you never allow for the collision to happen, of course, it's going to be poorly efficient and not as productive as what's needed. But yeah, I, th- I think there's there seems to be quite a few currents of that. There's interestingly quite a few folks I know who've produced books. You, Howard Davis, uh, Brooke Muller is about to push one forward. I think it's supposed to be actually maybe finished right now and then carolyn Steele finished it a few months prior to talking to you but they're all focusing on fairly similar topics mm-hmm. of questioning the bedrock of mm-hmm. of you know to use your words of of how we structure things how we structure cities how we structure mm-hmm. how we think of architecture is quite interesting well and what's cool about that metaphor is the root system of trees and plants and everything the, the sort of deepest root structures don't go beyond subsoil Hmm. and so we treat subsoil if bedrock is what would what should we do to support our immune system number one you know it's like our relationship with the planet and then subsoil so it's fundamentally just our health that's at bedrock and then up in subsoil we translate that into our social systems and our physical systems so that means we need to have planning strategies that bring us closer to, you know, being able to have a filter that protects our rivers and lakes and water systems. Hmm. And how do we shore up then the, the add more forest and canopy. And so the ridges and the valleys, the, the water systems and the high systems. And, and then all that subsoil is all the social systems that come with that, you know, are sort of basic understanding and and we use metaphors like pull it out by the roots right if something isn't working Mm. we looked at mismatch theory when communities aren't thriving when you know so social systems when there was the great migration to the north for education and jobs and now there's an equally big migration people heading back to the south to be supported by family and culture and and history. And so what about these social systems are just not working and let's root them out and plant new ideas down there. And then the topsoil, that's the moves. That's what we can actually design. And so we're looking at more hybrid spaces. And so after we put together, you know, I said, here, there's a building type, a livery stable has been tossed out of the mix 
for a long time. Why couldn't I be able to ride my horse to work? Mm. So, you know, just sort of questioning how it is we live on at topsoil. What are, you know, the sort of role of easements and setbacks? And, you know, if a setback is a function of fire, if we built differently, would we need side yard setbacks and you know, so we're questioning that planning strategy at the, the topsoil level. And so then the next class period, students were supposed to make proposals on what they would like to build in that mix. And I mean, we were all shell shocked at how universally everyone had probably four or five programs that could co-mingle. Mm in every one of these things. And one student, for example, is working at really, really broad scale governance issues. And uh, we were talking about how in the, um, it's not in Ostrom's book, but it's in another book that, well, she talks about the water basin competition in California, but, and there's another water basin that impacts Colorado and the whole Colorado River and all of that. But the notion that we cast all our state lines, right, without knowing the hydrology or the geology. Mm. And we were saying, so that's one kind of state, little s. What if we, now that we know the states of hydrology, what if we were to recast these governance lines and allegiances or whatever based on water and watershed and water basins? And so we could operate simultaneously, just, you know, obviously we're not going to change the world and recast all our state lines, but we could have maybe our water bill and our water systems mm. are regulated through different states. And I explained when I was teaching at University of Utah, there was the 50-year-old Delta pilot and he would describe the air as these 10-mile layers, right? He had states <laughs> of 10-mile increments. And so when air traffic control tells you where you need to go, you're in a different state. And so why can't we? Hmm. So this one student is looking at these large scale governances and for the work product, I've asked them to provide 10 jumps. So you can go as big. I mean, there's nothing stopping us from saying this applies to other cities globally. You know, if I'm in this kind of latitude, this makes sense for this kind of other city. And then to just bump, 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 come all the way down. So maybe that governance project comes all the way down to a kind of water meter or a kind of sentinel sites that might mark these other states, not just state line, welcome to Ohio, hmm. <laughs> but a, a water and we do, you know, um, you've just passed the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Yeah, I know there's a actually Brooke Muller may be that really good person to get in touch with about this. But I know he I mean, he knows this stuff like is the back of his hand. But what in one lecture that I've heard him give a few times during sort of grad school, there was this one course that he, he talked about water and, and I was a, a teaching assistant for that. But he there's this one fellow, I guess, and maybe you're aware of this, but he was sort of one of the pioneers, you know, that went west, part of the survey team or whatnot. And this was actually one of his fundamental findings, I guess. He said, once you break, I want to say the Mississippi, but maybe it's a bit further, you know, east than that. But once you break this, you know, vertical line in the US, mm -hmm. that the conditions of water are so fundamentally different that we have to rethink how we settle the west. Yes. And he has these fantastic maps that he's drawn around water tables and aquifers and, and how 
how state lines would be drawn according to that. But it's one of the most beautiful and, and head thinking sort of, you know, pieces of literature that I've encountered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, being able to go back to bedrock and not surprisingly, the students have taken to it quite well. It's become an, a neat rallying cry or <laughs> mm. um, in the same way that Eleanor Ostrom uses her. You know, we, we use that in the course. We'd say the five games, you know, that's game five, game four, just as a shorthand to the way things are working. And so the same way, you know, go down to bedrock. And in, interestingly, all it is, is our relationship with micro and macronutrients and how we then tap into that through our social systems and the design moves. If you look at the, uh, there's another documentary that takes an apple and cuts, I think that's 11th hour. We, We look at that one too. Hmm. that DiCaprio hosts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right, you cut this apple and you take a slice and then you take just the skin of the apple and, you know, there's a portion of that. And that's what we're having to survive on, you know, on the earth. That's what's supporting eight, nine billion people, maybe less after COVID. But, and so all of that comes down to you know, if we're going to allow for more and more population and game theory would say that the population and the pollution problem, the population problem and the pollution problem, right? They're the same and they're reciprocal in that it's not a technical solution. It's not a matter of figuring out how to do more aquaponic growing or how to you know, eat more plant-based. I mean, it's, it's, it is there, but it's all about how we learn to, you know, design the systems that help us to cooperate and coordinate together and for a just world. One question. So the um, the question of bedrock, I think, is quite interesting to put it in context. So a lot of the things you've said about the distinctions you've achieved during like, your life, I've actually never heard you mention before. Hmm. So in that respect, just to give the maybe the correct atmosphere, it seems like you're actually incredibly humble about these things. But when you do talk about them, it's just, you know, the list is quite remarkable. But you're also one of the calmest people I've met. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure your heart rate never goes above 30. So the, the question is, with an architecture and design, there's this, I mean, it's inherently and historically rather unhealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, the pace at which we work, the, the day-to-day rhythm of things, the all-nighters are sort of fetishized to a degree. What's the specifics of your work life? You know, how do you approach a day-to-day basis of productivity and, and keeping this kind of calmness? Interesting. You know, one of the things I am the most proud of is that no matter how hard it was being tenure track and a single parent, for some reason, you know, I never let that affect my ability to be a mom. I just said, there is no way in hell that it's going to get to me. Mm. I was up early tearing off wallpaper. You know, I painted every inch of my house. I made furniture. You know, I think my sons are very forgiving <laughs> when we've talked about this. They they understood mom was tenure track and she had a, a lot on her plate. Recently, I when we especially when we were talking about the studio and bedrock and and foods, how important foods were. I asked my, you know, and so most memories are built through food and you know, situations surrounding food. I asked them what what they remembered about growing up and food. And they were very quick to to come back with the sweetest little memories, like pizza bagels and <laughs> butter noodles and 
<laughs> the sweetest memories. And I thought, oh my God, I'm so thankful that they remember good things <laughs> because it was hard, you know. But work life, I love to work. I don't, um, my mom, I remember her saying she, she wanted us to play. She had a Piaget philosophy. You know, like, mm. And I remember her saying, you, you need to play because when play is your work, you learn what you're good at and you learn what you like. And I certainly did that. Mm. I mean, I actually, we're at 530, but I, I prepared a short little slideshow of my drawings if you if you wanted to just yeah yeah flash through that and can i share these later is that possible <laughs> yeah i mean which is funny the the homework you gave me was you know the social dilemma which was in a thread where i said i might start twitter again <laughs> yeah yeah but work life you know i looked out at my backyard and it's lovely it's perfect my house i i feel like i i work hard and i you know, it's all joy. It's all good for the most part. Mm. And I think we, you know, you just, I don't know, we just work, work, work. <laughs> yes. I don't see it as drudgery. I don't see it as a chore. It's just my life. But do you have an ability to cut it off? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got three cats. <laughs> They're part of a, a litter. They're all from the same litter. And there's one looking at me. Yeah, you know, I I love to, in fact, they will start squawking at me, talking to me, and they love to just lay around me. So I think, you know, in my acknowledgments I on my book, I say, you know, everyone should have at least three cats, um, <laughs> you know, sitting on you and your work and keeping it slow and sweet. Mm. So I think, you know, your yard, I love my yard. I love my gardening. I, I, I love my house, you know, so take care of that. I have great colleagues that if it's we have fun, you know, sort of staying in touch and supporting one another. Sweet kids, <laughs> you know, I have a great sister. So I think we just have a full life and are blessed. I have a gratitude book that I work on every night. <laughs> mm. Just a short couple of things to keep things in perspective. I mean, it's always a process. You know, just this morning I was talking to my sister about this big hump you know, financially and the commitment, you know, everything so far has been slow and go, slow and go. And now this is a big push for me financially to get the capsule ready. You know, and we are in COVID and I do have an ethic that I want to maintain about where my price range is going to be. Mm. And I don't want to compromise on that. I think it's exactly the story I want to tell and the way I want to tell it. So I just have to trust that building this and then when we come out of COVID and people's purse strings feel like they can get back to normal again, we'll see how it tests out. Mm. Yeah. So let's let's dive into these slides. Yeah. Yeah. See where and so are these your, your mirror... No, these are my drawings. I see. Right? Remember I mentioned the the little three ring binder and, and this is just a sampling of them. So I have to share my screen. Is that able to happen? Yeah. Let me see here. And so how old are you in these? <laughs> uh, these are the the early, early, early ones. And are these the ones where you're looking at sitcoms and basically... Um... Yeah, some of them are mixed in here. <laughs> yeah, and okay. So, but this is an early, early drawing and here's the entry. And what's fascinating, if you 
you know, if, if you zoom in, we can study these yourself. And I think I actually came in afterwards and titled these things because it looks like a different time. Mm. You come in the door and there's doorknobs. I'm articulating, you know, I have no language really. So here's pictures hung on the wall and doorknob. Here's grandfather's study and library. You know, look how I'm drawing this chase lounge. Mm. There's a phone on the table. There's the lamp is laying on its side, right? In plan. <laughs> and how, so is this your, you in first grade? I, yeah, I think this is first grade. <laughs> yeah, and okay. here, this is labeled afterwards phone here you know but initially it was just the phone here's a bear rug this is a trophy room Hmm. and then here's a little window seat this goes up here's a swinging door this is frozen food and canned storage the kitchen is always really small in my designs because i had very little to do with the kitchen growing up (laughs) it's a low priority mysterious realm that gives me food yeah (laughs) yeah look at these drapes you know and there's candle holders. And then, so you go upstairs. This is a picture room. These people, this is a grandfather clock. Look at this dresser. This is the kind that's a, a, it's a vanity, right? That you sit down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and here, here are these curtains. These are shelves. I'm sorry. Here's a nice window that's on top of that stack. Look at this. That's interesting, huh? It's interesting. Here's grandparents' master bedroom. If you look at this, these are teacups and sugar and creamer. <laughs> This says canopy bed, doorknobs, and this is recognizing where that door is going to swing, right? <laughs> Here's the bathroom. There's drapes. Look at these. These are in elevation, wow. drawn over plan. And then you come into the sitting room. Look at the TV. It's in elevation, in plan. And then you go up. You get upstairs here. Here's a clock room. And then here's Chester and James Scott. So I remember this, naming these people. So here's a chess game they're playing, these boys. Here's a room that doesn't have anything going on. <laughs> I didn't finish it. And so it's amazing the um, variety of objects. I mean, for that age, I mean, one thing that's particularly bizarre is that you're stacking actually the yeah. you know the plans in a way that makes sense but the other one yeah. is the yeah just the range of objects yeah but i know the, that i labeled these afterwards but still like each room has a different type of chair a different type of sofa a different type of table mm-hmm. like it's not a it's not uh-uh. just the same right. chair design that you've drawn that you you just keep replicating huh here there's a mirror and a brush and a comb on the dresser <laughs> <laughs> and you know the toilet paper Look at the the toilet flushing lever, the shower curtain, the soap. But you you see this stuff, and there's no question that you're headed towards architecture. No, I mean this is beyond. Uh... <laughs> this says early American. Yeah. So I'm I'm styling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even this fireplace is. And here we have a. This is this shows up frequently too, where there's a an organ and a piano. Look at this lamp. In elevation, this is a, a cigarette ashtray that I remember seeing in, you know, Amer- early American mm. like this. Look at these chairs, early American. Again, this kitchen, dwarf mm. compared to everything else. And here I've got a site plan. <laughs> and here's an elevation. That's, oh, okay. I, yeah, I thought that was a, a drawing from the book. That's you actually drawing an elevation. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. I'm drawing that elevation. Look at this one. This is a real early one. Look how, (laughs) look at this toilet. Look how you've drawn the closets and everything. I mean, that's like, 
Yeah, there's the hangars. Look at this TV again in elevation, in plan. And this is really early, early. And then I had these. One of these things said 1970. So that's, I'm in seventh and eighth grade mm. around there. But to read these things, you could buy this house for 27000 Is it like a Sears Roebuck kind of a prefab? Yeah, it must yeah. have been, you know, Ladies Home Journal, Better Homes and Gardens. And, you know, this was an apartment. I remember thinking this was really awesome stuff. Look at the decor back then. <laughs> hmm. And then this was most space for the money. And this was interesting, the paper scraps that I would draw on. Look at this elevation, this shed. Well, you're starting to develop like poche and everything properly, wall thicknesses and, and that's starting to kick in. Well, that's what, you know, again, we're just sort of plucking, pulling a few things here, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, this one, you know, look at this language, understanding the, the downstairs. What's your estimate on the date for that? I wish I had dates on this, but I'm probably in middle school yeah. because these papers were from middle school. But here, you know, Farmers Union, probably a notepad from my dad. <laughs> and this was a paper. This must have been in high school because I'm typing now. You know, nature is cycle. All animals grow, multiply, and die if one type of animal becomes. So it's all about nature. Hmm. And here I'm already thinking about systems. We care about our endangered wildlife. But here's the mall I was talking about. There's an auditorium here. You know, there's bedrooms. Everyone has a bathroom. Working these bathrooms into these nicks and crannies. Here's a pool, you know, a dining hall. The entry, fancy stairs, a courtyard, ballroom, you know, and then here's the perspective. <laughs> hmm. And this is listing all the program in the shopping mall. This one, same thing. You know, I think it's getting here. I've got upholstery. I'm patterning. I mean, what's fascinating to me is the I mean, one aspect is the, you know, you mentioned the kitchen being unrealistic because it's a space you don't go into, but it's sort of a, <laughs> if you take that logic and apply it throughout, you sort of trace, mm -hmm. you know, how a kid sees the world essentially. And then you see this very specific refinement of mm -hmm. yeah. craft that's quite, I mean, I, I don't know anybody else who's yeah, actually I drawn this consistently focused on architectural plans. No wonder you start with a plan. I mean, you'd be... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I start with a plan. And I thought, here's another funny thing. There's always a big <laughs> attention to the furnace room. <laughs> Interesting. Huh? God only knows what is going on here. <laughs> furnace room. <laughs> it's important. Now we get some angles. <laughs> Here we get some angles. This is, and look at this. This is an A-frame and I'm recognizing the knee wall. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> right? This is unoccupiable in an A-frame. Here's a sunken living room. This is clearly the 70s. Yeah, those are big fashion though. You see it in... Here's a mansard roof type of thing. Yeah. Cutting in and recognizing. But so how are you refining this though? Because you're not, you're not showing this to people and getting feedback. No, you're, is this just through looking at various, huh? Yeah, this purely, no one, I always wanted my sister to draw with me and she'd you know, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I couldn't get anyone to look at my stuff. And here's, you know, again, fireplace in elevation in plan. Yeah. There's some things that, that don't get shifted, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here, this is... That is a sophisticated set of drawings there. Wow. 
the axon and the elevations. And also, there are no erasures. Hmm. That is like peculiar to me because this is not paper you can really trace over and think about that. This is purely with a straight edge of some sort. I didn't have architectural tools. You know, always at a utility room. It's you no, know, it's strange you get the scale fairly right. Like even in the earlier drawings, you don't have these very big doors and tiny oh. chairs and. Like it's, it's right. There was one, hmm. is this the last one where there's all kinds of math in here, adding these dimensions up, making sure it all works. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's something, Darla. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's many, many more. This is hilarious. It's a thing like this and <laughs> um, they're mounted on construction paper. And so when two things work together, they're both on the green and there's a description of, you know, so there's other loose papers. Here was one that was interesting. They all have these little things that are working out the section. Hmm. With sight and so on. Hmm. Right. Right. You know, always had little sketches to understand the form. And this has a section that's some dotted lines. So is it is it difficult for you to connect to just people who didn't do this? I mean, do you just assume like what you guys didn't draw plans since the age of age of five and, and continue it? Because I mean, this is a peculiar, I mean, like peculiarly dedicated. Yeah, look at that. That's a proper X little scale. <laughs> The, the section thinking about there are a lot of things in split level and there's there's math all over this thing i would have been fascinated to know what your folks are thinking while you're i don't i don't they, they didn't you know never talk to me about it <laughs> like don't bring it up she's gonna start drawing it just you know same like the piano you know it's like she just does these things you know so <laughs> the play thing is interesting, though. I mean, the just, you know that is a line. You know, the not work but play. Uh -huh. That's that's quite interesting. Anyway, thanks, Darla. No, I think that's that's great. If you can send me those, I'll I'll put them online so people have some context to the audio here. And no, I think that's very interesting. Well, and Mayor Dad has said that's the book you need to write. Is I need to figure what the hell this was all about. And oh, and you know, it's funny. I'm watching this TV show now called. It's with Matt LeBlanc. He's a man with a plan. Mm. And they are breaking those rules left and right, you know. And Matt LeBlanc does a lot like Friends where there's this laugh machine, mm. you know, that kind of classic TV show. And they have the stare that goes off the stage, right? And so from the living room, you see the carpet. And I took photos of it. You see the carpet runner going up the stair, and it's one kind of carpet. And you see the walls, right? Then from the kitchen, right next to it, you can see this kitchen stair and conceivably they connect, right? It's the same stair. But when I took a screenshot, I you know, paused the TV and there it is, the wallpaper. The kitchen stair has the sort of diagonal turning steps, but the one from the mm. living room doesn't. So there's no landing from the kitchen side, <laughs> but there's a landing from the living room side. So this is what I was doing as a little kid. I was spotting these things, incongruities all over the, congruencies all over the place. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite something. I mean, those those drawings are really... It's whatever, it's something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a... I, I, I have not heard a single other person, maybe they're embarrassed and they won't talk about these things until they're 60-something. <laughs> I just haven't but, seen it continuous like that. Like to see to see a continuous progression. Because I mean, as a kid, I did stuff, but it would be you know a season here, a season off. Yeah. But, but yours seems to be a continuous lineage of this thing, which is quite yeah. Bizarre. The oldest stuff is in this corduroy. 
three ring binder. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. That's something. And yeah, this is the early, early, early stuff. And this was one from my sister and I sent her this sketch. I said, I made you do this and I know she hated it, but I made her draw too. <laughs> That's fairly sophisticated as well, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I told her, you know, and she also couldn't. I labeled it, but I have her, I, I wrote here, you know, my sister did this. So, but I labeled it, my writing to label it. <laughs> so, you know, because her drawing, she's left-handed and she's just not elegant as me. <laughs> 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 That's a little more normal, I guess. And this is, this is the floor plan of our house that we grew up in. And the kitchen for her too is left off. Interesting. So no, don't get it. Mystery realm. Yeah. <laughs> Some stuff comes out of there. <laughs> Two girls in the family were unaware of what's going on in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Bound for other things, certainly. So. No, it's really interesting, Darla. But yeah, if you can send me those, I think that'd be fantastic. I don't know if you want to share all of them. I'll send you the PowerPoint and you can do whatever you yeah, want to. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much, Darla. Thank you. This is fun. <laughs> yeah, maybe we do round three when we think of further stories to tell. <laughs> maybe after you read the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, that would be great. If you have perspectives. And the invitation is there. I'm, I'll be teaching this in the spring, so. Yeah, that would be great. You know, nine to noon on Fridays, so. No, no, that um, would be great. If that's not an... Yeah. You know, if nothing else, I mean, we have the, the documentaries you could watch on your own, but some key lectures as we walk through this material. I typically love, I need a classroom that is covered in chalkboards because I love, I fill the chalk, fill the boards. Mm. And so I'll have to put these now. And I only have my notes, my notebooks, and I just create this fresh all the time. I don't have slides that I've generated. Mm, it's very Corbusian. I heard he, he gave lectures like that on his uh, Radiant City and so forth. I guess that's like Morphosis as well. The, and just set up this blank canvas and start drawing. Though I think Corbusier couldn't draw so well, so it would be, you know, deficient in some ways, but he made mm -hmm. up with it in terms of personality. Yeah, I try to get to class about, you know, an hour, 30 minutes ahead of time. I try to book it so that I can do that. And then I just put all new notes on the chalkboard. And then as we talk through and the students add things, then I puzzle more things out. Mm. So that that's going to be, you know, lost when we have to do Zoom. But mm. I think it'll be... We'll we'll get through the material. We'll yeah, let me know. That that that'd be great. That'd be that'd be Alrighty. very good. Okay. And I'm gonna call I'm gonna see if Brooke Miller might be available for my final review. I, yeah, from what I grasp he's you know, first year as dean. He's at NC State, correct? Is he? Or I always I, I think yeah, I think it's NC State. I, I think it's NC State. I always get it confused with UNC in my mind, but I think it's NC State, yeah. He's landscape architecture or architecture, right? If it's architecture, it's NC State, yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, it's it's sort of a plus, I forget, it's like the College of Something Plus, you know, and it had this very well-rounded uh, approach to it, including, I think, even like theater under its umbrella, but yeah. So if you have his email, I'll, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. He might appreciate the bedrock. No, I think what I think what you're describing is pretty much dead on with with his approach. His is, I think, very much water focused. It sounds like yours has a few other layers embedded into it. But from what I've seen in his studios that he's taught, it's been you know using water and ecology as a fundamental driver, and then seeing what other layers you can tackle through it. So I think it'd be it'd be spot on. 
And I have another ulterior motive I'm using as a proof of concept, not not entirely driven by it, but I'm going after, they, they haven't put the call out, they're rewriting it, um, the smart and connected communities. Hmm. And I'd like to show this as, as an approach using Grasshopper and Parametric hmm. to at least as an overlay that we could challenge existing planning uh, strategies for a city. Yeah. You know, if we want to take a burgeoning mega city and say, how can we get ahead of this and integrate more rural, urban, integrated planning? And so find opportunities where we can protect our waterways. And so we're creating a heat map of our local terrain. We're using State College because we can be here and know know the sites. Yeah, I think I can I can put you in touch with uh, Brooke. And then also maybe Carolyn Steele would be also helpful. Yeah. She's London-based, but... I'm sure there seems to be definitely overlaps between the two of those. Fabulous. All right, Darla. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. This was awesome. All right, Darla. (laughs) Bye-bye. Take care.